0: We'll get going. Okay, so... um, Excuse me. My stuff. Okay. Let's open with a word of prayer real quick. Gracious Father, we thank you so much. And it's frankly unbelievable that we have the privilege and opportunities that you afford us. Father, that you deign to... uh, Even take notice of us, let alone to love us and and to uh, give us such good things uh, as your word, as your revelation about yourself, um, as your Son, uh, and as our faith. We stand amazed and in awe of um, who you are uh, and who you are to us. We ask, Father, that you will, in this hour, um, open our hearts and our minds to your truth, that you will um, close it off to any error or false ideas that may may come across You'll help us to understand and to see you truly as you are. And um, in so doing, Father, sanctify us to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, so we're starting a new series. Uh, I believe it was introduced a few weeks ago by uh, Blake, and I believe he held up a great big, thick book, right? Like this. And did it intimidate and scare anyone? <laughs> Seth was intimidated and scared when he saw the book, and having read the first four chapters of the book is now, as he in his words, terrified. <laughs> uh, okay, so... This is The Doctrine of God by John Frame. Uh, I was asked just a second ago, who was John Frame? Good question. And I really didn't stop to... uh, I've known of John Frame for a long time. I've had another book of his, which is actually the first book in this series. This is the second book. The first book is called The the Doctrine of the Knowledge of God. And when I first got that book, I thought, well, that's about God's way of knowing things. I was completely wrong. It's actually a book of about our ability to know God, okay? And how that knowledge comes to us and that sort of thing. And it's not nearly as, well, say not nearly. It's not as big as this book, okay? And it's the first in a series of what is called a theology of lordship that John Frame has been developing for decades, okay? I believe John Frame is with Westminster Seminary. Um. Maybe uh, Seth will do a little more research and bring a better bio next time, because honestly I f- didn't even think to to get a good bio on John. But um, anyway, I will say that this book, when I started reading it, was a across my head. I give that to you figuratively because that's the impact that it has had on me so far in reading it, okay? Um, why is this... Um, nope, that's not the right key to, s- to press to get anything to happen. Let's start... Okay, so why is this top subject so important to us? Or let me ask it is there anything more important than a right understanding of our God? Can you think of anything that's actually more important? So, the doctrine of God, let's do a brief history. In the early. Part of the in the early church, there was quite a bit of work done to develop a doctrine of God. However, it was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, and that has carried over uh, pretty much down through the ages. Uh, In uh, the Middle Ages, there was a good deal of scholasticism that devoted time to the doctrine of God. When um, Aquinas, uh, for example, um has almost um th- three quarters of his suma th- uh suma contra genti- gent- summa okay gentiles, uh h- his work on god three quarters of it was devoted to the doctrine of god and it it pretty much was very philosophical, and what do we mean by philosophical? Well, we get from the development of the doctrine of God. We have words such as being, and substance, and attribute. And if you'll recall, we you know we use these words even in our even in our creeds and and the Christology or in our Christology, we use these words. Well, these are not necessarily biblical words; they're philosophical words. And they come from Greek philosophy. And that doesn't mean that they don't have some merit and they don't give illumination into the the understanding of who God is. But that's not necessarily the terms that the Bible uses when it talks about God. Okay, When we get to the Reformation, the Reformation was primarily concerned about um, salvation. And moved a number of topics that, was, that were, had historically been under the topic of God in under salvation. Such topics as election. Election is an act of God and it sat under God prior to the Reformation. The Reformation moved it under the doctrine of salvation. But to give as, as a contrast... Calvin, in his Institutes, three big volumes, as big as the, each volume, as big as the book I just held up. Okay, only devotes four chapters to the doctrine of God. Okay, so following him, following the Reformation, there was there has been more de- development on the doctrine of God, but it has too has been primarily scholastic in nature. It's drawn from the scholastics and basically just simply develops these, cons, these philosophical concepts about God in ever more detail. Until we get to the, about the last 300 years, and liberal theologians take over. And the liberal theologians went on a quest to redefine um, You know, God in other in terms other than the the terms that the the Bible gives us. When we get to the modern day, um, we have things like I don't know. Slide, okay. We get to the modern day, and um, we have a plethora of different views of God. Okay? Um, So, what should our approach be? First of all, what is our source? What should be our source? The The Word. And who wrote the Word? god we say that the bible is god's word written down to man right now i want you to stop and i want you to think about that for a minute because we're going to we are going in the next in the coming weeks start looking at a lot of passages in which god talks about himself in ways that are very, very unsettling. Very challenging to our notions of what, how the world should work and, 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 and challenging to our experience. And when, when I say that the book was a slap across the head, it's like, how did I not ever see this? Okay? And and yet it's and yet it has it, it really been a, a bit gut-wrenching, to be honest with you. What God says about Himself. So you, and, and it becomes a problem of, well then do I really believe this? <laughs> is this really can this possibly be true? Okay? And so I want us to stop for a minute and and settle in our minds. Do we truly believe that Scripture is inerrant? Is it trustworthy? Is it really, is it really suitable for your life, living, and practice? You need to settle that question and hang on to it for this ride. Okay, so before we get started with today's lesson, I would like to take a moment and let's just talk about where we're going. Uh, this is the, the, the table of contents. I hope you all can read this. I, it's it's kind of hard to get it all squeezed into one screen. But we obviously are not going to be so talk, covering every chapter in the year. Also, we are going to obviously be taking... The whole year to uh, finish this book. The last, uh, the last chapter is mine, and it will start on December the eighth. Okay, so we are not going to try to to bite this whole thing off in one fell swoop. There will be lots. There will be gaps. We will be covering for the next six weeks. We will be in the book. Then we will take a break and uh, then we will t- do a bit more in march and april. We'll take another break july, august and september and then finally in november and december. All right. And we'll try to keep this in front of ourselves as we go along just as a reminder of of what we're where we're at and where we're going. Sure. He is a good writer. He really is. It, it, it is not a slog to get, to get through his chapters. Uh, uh, that's for sure. Okay. So, my cha- so the first chapter, or the second chapter, is um, the centrality, or is called the Lord, is actually the name of the chapter. And frame begins with the centrality of lordship. So let's turn to Exodus um, the third chapter, because we're going to be coming back to this frequently. Now Moses was keeping walk, keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, "Here I am." And then he said, "Do not come near. Take off your sandals, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground." And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. One of my problems in reading these passages is is that they seem so, I don't know, pedantic. We've read them over and over again. I've read them over all my life. And I just sort of gloss over some of the the nuance of what's being expressed in the passage. Okay? But what's just happened here is a voice out of a bush has spoken to Moses and said, I am the God of your forefathers. And the moment that Moses recognized who he was speaking to, what did he do? He hid his face. Like the cherubim. Huh? Like the cherubim. Okay. I think I haven't given that much thought. But why does he hide his face? You don't see God and live? You want, you don't see God and live? Well, you don't see the face of God. And live. But he's not seeing the face of God. He's seeing just a burning bush. And yet, he has some notion of a contrast. There is something in the moment that lets Moses know that there is a gap, a huge gap between him and that holy being that is speaking to him. Out of the bush. He understands it instinctively. He recognizes he doesn't belong there and he turns his face. Now, why do I say that? Because that is not, Moses is not the only man to have this experience in Scripture. In almost every experience, with the encounter, with a physical encounter of some manifestation of the living God. What is the human response? <laughs> well, We'll get to some more. We're coming to them. <laughs> then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold... The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians repressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Israel out of Egypt you shall serve God on this mountain then Moses said to God if I come to the people of Israel and say to them the God of your forefathers has sent me to you they will ask what is his name is that what they're going to ask And he says, what, what, when they, they're going to ask, what is his name? Isn't that a little bit strange? I mean, they might ask, are you sure you spoke to God? You know? Are you sure that's what you weren't just having in a, a hallucination? I mean, that's the kind of question I might ask. But I'm, I'm not sure that I would, would would ask, what is his name? Okay? But Moses asked this question: what Is your name? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Say this to the people of Israel I am. Has sent you to me. God also said to Moses, Say to the people, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. That term, the Lord, is, I believe, the correct pronouncement. We pronounce it as Yahweh. I've always pronounced it as Yahweh. But I believe I believe the pronunciation is Yehovah. Okay? And going forward from here over and over again God is identified as the Lord. And we find name and lord throughout scripture in contexts that are central to his nature his dignity and his relationship with his people more often than not in contexts that are related to his acts and actions The, Lord, the word Lord is found over 7,484 times in the NIV, mostly referring to God in the Old Testament or to Christ in the New Testament. 7,000, over 7,000 times. The Lord, and, 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 in, and in probably more than half of these, it is God Referring to himself, I am the Lord, I the Lord will over and over and over again that they may know that I am the Lord. Okay. And so this is a quote from uh, Frame. In view of the centrality of lordship in the scripture's own doctrine of God, and specifically in its Christology, it would seem an obvious choice as a central motif for a theological discussion. And that is then what we are going to proceed to do. (coughs) He then goes on to note, yet there there are... those who very are very much opposed to the concept of lordship when it comes to looking at God. And he lists four. He lists almost twi- four, three times this, that many in the introduction. But in, in this particular chapter, he lists four. Uh, Moltman, uh, Johnson, Pinnock, and Zane Hodges. Um, and Zane Hodges is, a, is one of the ones that is closest to home for us, home for us because you'll... For all of you that are, my, uh, I don't know, 40 and older, you should be able to remember the lordship salvation controversy in the latter half of la- the last century. Um, so let's uh, just begin. Let's look at a... This is the definition straight off of a dictionary on the Internet, basically. what is the? What, how do they define lord? Lord is someone or something having power, authority influence a master or ruler in his, historically it referred to a feudal superior especially the proprietor of a manor house. Uh, it's also obviously used in scripture to refer to God or Christ and it's used as a verb to lord it over and act in superior and dominating manner towards someone. Now I bring that up because it relates to, it helps to relate to why so many people might have a problem with looking at God as Lord. And what is the problem? <laughs> the problem is that we, if He is our Lord, then we. Belong to him, and we want to belong to no one but who ourselves. Okay, so in human history, and 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 perhaps you know, there's good reason. We've got pretty good uh, reason for perhaps not really having a good feeling about Lord. All right, throughout history, I mean, lords have been oppressive patriarchs. Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus. I mean, think of of the, the, the millions and millions of people who suffered their whole lives in abject slavery throughout the centuries because of the power of a few men. move on to Roman emperors. They didn't do so well either. Okay? Feudal lords in the feudal system throughout the Dark Ages. European kings. Dictators in the 20th century. Human lordship has not fared well in terms of how it has treated its people. Okay? But none of these models obviously fit exactly the lordship that we see of God in Scripture in two ways, frankly. But the, very bas- but the basic concepts of hierarchy, rule, and power, they are intrinsic to the concept of the lordship of God. <laughs> Human lordship has great power, but its power is nothing, nothing in contrast to the power of God. Human lordship is rule. And it's ruled by the police state or it's ruled by just good government, maybe. It is nothing Nothing in contrast to the rule of God. How do we know this? Because God tells us so. And you know this. You, we talk about it all the time. We just, I don't know, I have just never put it all together in, a, in the sense of His rule isn't just okay his stuff or it is his stuff it's just that his stuff is everything and he has absolute rule over his stuff no ruler in human history has had true absolute rule over his people there has always been an element of resistance but in the case of God's rule Nothing, nothing in the universe resists his rule. And he's demonstrated that time and time again in history. I don't know why it seems so different to me, this go-round, but that's an extremely incredible thought. That nothing, everything belongs to him, and nothing is outside his absolute, absolute control. That's what he says. And yet, the very nature of liberal theology for the past 300 years has been to assert human autonomy. I don't know why he said 300 years. How about for the whole history of man? Okay? But in the case of liberal theology, what he's trying to get at is, it's why all of a sudden do we arrive at this point and our concept of God is so paltry, so weak, so, so, you know. It's because we... And, 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 you know, liberals are just human beings doing what human beings do, okay? We like to labor them, liberals. They're just guys like you and me, okay? Doing what we do, all right? Which is attempting to, every day, assert our autonomy. And they want to avoid, at all costs, any notion... And let's just make it personal. I want to avoid almost at all cost any notion that I belong to somebody else. I don't want to think about that and the implications of that. That I must think according to someone else's standards. I mean, you know, I don't want to do that. And that I must obey someone else, without question. I should always have the right to ask, do I have to? Yahweh, the name of a person. So, in the passage that we um, just read... Um, when God says, I am who I am, he says, Say this to the people, I am a sent you. And then God says, Say this also to Israel, the Lord. When he says the Lord, he is using this term, Yahweh, okay, or Yoheva. And um, it should be noted that it's a proper name. It's the name of a personal person, for for lack of a better word. It refers to someone who acts and speaks. He has his own goals, his own purposes, his own standards, his own delights and hatreds. And he relates to us, and we dare not take him for granted. And yet, interestingly enough, Scripture does not describe God as a person. It is an, an, the idea of person is an extra-biblical word, much like the Trinity, that we, as persons, apply to help our understanding of God. There really is no way for us to talk about God as a... But why do we say He is a person? Because God says, I am the living God. And how do we refer to anything that is living and is not a creature who has personality and intellect and relates to us? How can we, ta- how can we, cons- can we conceptualize Him except to conceptualize him as a person. And so we do. But God does not refer to himself as a person. How does God refer to himself? I am the Lord. The Lord. That's how he refers to himself. The Lord. Expressing all the things that he is in that term. Again, again, could you explain I'm, I'm puzzled by that. Are you saying God is not a person or you're saying that scripture never applies the term person to God? No, I'm 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 saying that scripture never applies the term person. God, God does not refer to himself as a person. Okay? I'm not I'm I'm not I'm saying that we have no other way to talk about him except in terms of personhood, okay? I'm saying we don't have any means. I'm just saying that God does not refer to himself that way. And so, we should keep in mind that when we're speaking of God, we're not speaking of person as we think of persons, okay? He's he's not like us. Okay? In that fashion. And 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 I and and yet he and yet he, and the problem i think here is, is that god relates to us and he it makes it clear in scripture he relates to us at a very deeply personal level you know intimate loving level okay and so we bring him down in in that we can't help but bring him down bring him to be kind of like us But but God in Scripture doesn't afford us that opportunity, does He? He makes it quite clear. He's not like us. We, in certain ways, are like Him. But He is not like us. Okay, so we will get to those questions. Um, I, 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 we're going to let Dr. Frame <laughs> teach us in those in that respect, and I, and he will. We are going to get to talking about man and how man relates to God, okay and um, I, I, I yeah. I don't want to. don't want one. I don't want to steal somebody else. Mainly, I got too much. I got to cover. <laughs> okay. So I talked about how you need. So God is the greatest. And okay. And now I'm fixing to speak in non-personal terms. Okay. God is the greatest force or principle that we can, see, can conceive. i want to stop and think about that. Think of the greatest forces out there in the universe. Okay? Whether you do or don't believe in the Big Bang, consider the force of, a, of what the Big Bang might have been. All right? I think it's pretty clear... When God spoke and the universe came into being, there was some sort of big bang. And that was done with His voice. He is the greatest power, force, principle that we can conceive. Anything that you can conceive greater than Him, then your conception of God is too small. And in this day and time, in this secular scientific age, those, four, those sorts of concepts are clearly taught to be impersonal. Forces, energy, matter, they are not personal things. But that is not true of God. Okay? It is not necessarily, it is not a necessity that the greatest force or power that we can conceive is impersonal. And the Bible, God, makes it clear that he is first and foremost a living, personal being. Thus we see in Scripture the reverse of the naturalistic worldview that we have been taught. Personal trumps impersonal. Since all impersonal forces are created, controlled, and directed by a personal God, naturalistic thought teaches that everything personal, all consciousness, derives from impersonal matter and energy. The Bible tells us that matter, energy, motion, time, space, are under the rule of a personal Lord. All the wonderful things that we find in personality, ...intelligence, compassion, creativity, love, justice... ...are not ephemeral data... ...doomed to be snuffed out in a cosmic calamity. Rather, they are aspects of of what is most permanent... ...and most ultimate. The Lord. All other religions... I did a matrix, but I decided, eh, we don't need to go that, go that route. All, you, you make a matrix. Personal, impersonal. Absolute authority, non-absolute. Okay? And you will find that the only personal absolute that is there in terms of the religions is the Christian God. All other religions will place that you will end up placing their God in one of the other quadrants. All other religions, if they confess a personal God, they do so under the influence of Scripture. That's frame. Okay. Not only does Yahweh denote personality and personhood and person it also denotes the Holy One. What is the first thing that the Lord told Moses when he approached the bush? Take off your sandals. The ground that you're standing on is holy. What made it holy? The fire? The bush? Something about the ground? No. The presence of the living Lord is what made it holy. And Moses instinctively understood that holiness. He did what? He turned his face. Okay, so uh, holiness then is God's capacity and right, right to arouse our reverent awe and wonder it is his uniqueness it is part of why he probably doesn't refer to himself as person he is unique among all personalities all ever anywhere in this universe outside this universe he is unique There's only one. One Lord. Okay? And it reflects His transcendence as a result, His separateness from all that He has made. And because we are sinners as well as creatures, God also stands over and against us as ethically pure. And God tells us, to step back. And rightfully so. I think any exa- all the examples we have of men who have encountered just, you know, an expression of God's lordship in every example that we have in Scripture, there's no problem with those guys wanting to step back. They want to hide. All right? that's what they want to do. When confronted with a holy living Lord, what they want to do is they want to hide. He's unique among, we've touched on that. Holiness is ethical as well as metaphysical or ontological. Lord's holiness transcends us not only as creatures, but especially as sinners, and thus He tells us to back away. And yet, amazingly, He draws us to Himself. And he started with Israel. He basically said, I'm going to make you a holy nation. Were they holy? No, they were not holy. God said, I will make you a holy nation. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I, Yahweh Elohim, am holy. They, must, they participate in the holy assembly. They keep the holy day. They sacrifice at a holy place. and They sacrifice through a holy priest wearing holy garments, anointed with holy oil. They were separated from all other nations as God's special people. They were to be the image of God's ethical perfection. And as Christians today, We learn God's will through Holy Scriptures, and we are called saints, or holy ones. Holiness, then, is a very rich concept. It speaks of God's transcendence and separation from finite sinful creatures. But it also speaks of how God draws them to Himself, making them holy. Holiness marks God's transcendence, but it also marks His eminence, His presence to redeem us. In both as transcendence and eminence, judgment, salvation, law, and gospel, God's holiness drives us to worship Him, Yahweh is the Lord who moves us to worship Him with reverence and awe. And the last point that we want to make about lordship is that lordship comes to us in a covenant relationship. Lordship Does not come to us at the whim and will of a tyrant. God exercises his lordship through covenant. Lord implies that there are servants or vassals, it's part of what is meant to be a lord which implies that there is a relationship between the one, the Lord, and the many. All right? And so what is the nature of that relationship? Does lordship qualify as an overarching motif for the understanding of God? Okay? Now, basically, Frame is defending his choice of lordship as the paradigm through which or the perspective through which to look at God and the doctrine of God. And he asks, shouldn't we begin with some? Okay, so he asked, should we begin where the, you know, we've always started, which is with the ontological Trinity, and start talking about his, you know, his godly attributes of aseity, eternality, those sorts of things. Lord, the concept of lordship, in which we are a very much a part of it, isn't that sort of a man-centered approach to looking at God? His response is fourfold. We've already pointed out, and, and I did you guys a disservice. I had a whole list of passages that I wanted to read to you today. Okay? Hopefully, you will get to read those passages. Um, during this time part part of the thing is the the deal is is that it isn't just any singular passage that drives home this aspect of god's lordship it's the weight of the myriad of passages that there are in scripture that talk about him as lord and he what he does and in the context that he says I am the Lord the things the acts that he does that they may know that I am the Lord all right wake up ken he is the Lord I am the Lord okay wake up understand this realize this I am the Lord And, and I, But I don't have time to do that. So I'll just yell at you. How's that? <laughs> but we we did point out, over 7,000 times in, in the NIV, it, he, the word Lord is translated. The Lord must want us to understand. He's the Lord. And He wants us to talk about Him and think about Him As the Lord. Okay? So the Lord is the central name for God in biblical revelation. It is the name that He has chosen for Himself. We didn't choose it. God chose it. Okay? The servant relationship is an a priori to any ontological discussion about God. What is He saying? We can't talk about these, these eternal attributes of God outside of our relationship to Him. Who we really are as related to Him. And who are we as related to Him? Whether we admit it or not, who are we? We are His creature. We are His vassal. We are His servants. We are. You can argue against it if you wish, but that doesn't change the reality. If He is the Lord, that's who we are. And we cannot talk about Him outside of that reality. The use of Lordship does not compromise the transcendence of God. In fact, I believe When it really comes down to it, if you really start looking at what God says about Himself when He talks about Himself as Lord, you suddenly get the you suddenly, I mean, if you look at the weight of what is being said, you suddenly you you suddenly get the the feel of why people want to hide. Even John Calvin recognized the inseparability between the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves, and he said he did not know which came first. That's a philosophical theological statement there, but basically frame here in this, this, this brief moment here he's, he is giving his apologetic for why look. Lo, Approaching the doctrine of God from lordship is warranted and worthwhile. And I think the argument is very straightforward. If that is the name, if the Lord is the name that God has chosen for himself, and if the Lord is the name that God uses to teach, to reveal himself to humanity, Then that's where we need to start. It's where God has chosen to start. Okay. Israel's covenant, this covenant relationship, where was it first delivered? It was delivered on Mount Sinai. And it came from the mouth of God. And when the the Israelites heard it, what did they ask for? Don't ever let us have to hear His voice again. Why? Again, because they instinctively felt they instinctively understood they were a creature and he was a holy God and they had no right. They were in jeopardy in his presence. What did he do next? He wrote it on tablets of stone. So the first the covenant with Israel was first spoken and then he wrote it himself. Those tablets were stone were placed next to the ark of the covenant in the holy of holies as a witness against Israel. He points out that it was literally those tablets of stone were literally holy writing. We have holy scripture. Israel's relationship to God was not governed by their own imaginations or by any religious wisdom or by scholarship or oral tradition but was governed by a written word authored by the Lord, not man. Frame then proceeds to extend the covenant relationship to all God's creatures using the Mosaic Covenant as a type. And I I found this a little bit fascinating. I personally want to just go straight to what is the first covenant. The first covenant is the covenant of works, is it not? And it was a covenant that God made with Adam. Right? It is a covenant that exists today. That covenant never went away. And it is the covenant under which all men are judged. It is a covenant of works. There are other covenants, and there is a new covenant. So I'm not saying that it's the only covenant. But, 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 but Frame chose to use the Mosaic Covenant as a type, and he talked about how in the creation narrative of Genesis, God defeats darkness and divides the waters, as he did in Egypt. Interesting concept. His powerful word commands new creatures to come into being, and they obey. They come into being. We come into being. At the end of his creative labor, he makes a holy place for himself and mankind. And he treats all his creatures, including man, as his covenant servants. He told Adam, you have anything in this garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. The covenant of works. Because in the day that you do, you will surely die. Okay? That covenant has never been abrogated. It still exists today. Covenant of works. If you can live a perfect life from the time you come out of your mother's womb, God will let you into heaven. Problem is, you can't. You can't be done. And so you live under the judgment of that covenant. I live under the judgment of that covenant. So every creature, every human being, is in covenantal relationship with God. That's the point. Okay. In Genesis 6-9, God judges the wickedness. Again, Frame is making the argument that we all live in covenantal relationship under God. Okay. And then finally, Jesus establishes a new covenant. And this covenant, Jesus says, is will be written on the hearts of men of, of, of God's elect. It is sealed with the blood of Christ. It obligates us, it obliges us to obedience, honor, and worship, and He extends it to the whole world. Scripture does use other motifs, other yeah, to, to relationship motifs. But if you will look at these, marriage, family, friends, master-servant, all of them have some component of an agreement of a covenant to them. And so, in summary, the name Lord names the head of the covenant. His essential relationship to us is that of a great king who has delivered us from death, calls us to serve Him by obeying His his written word. All right, I'm done.